So you can take your Bibles, turn them with me to Joshua chapter 2. And uh, as I've been studying the book of Joshua, I discovered something very interesting. Uh, the Bible books that we often regard as being in the genre of history, uh, books like Joshua, Judges, Kings, uh, they were not considered by the Jews to be history as much as prophecy. Uh, not that they told the future as, as much as they saw the writers as preachers. Uh, the stories they told were historical for sure, but uh, they were also regarded as sermons uh, full of encouragements and warnings to the readers that they were to apply to their lives and their current circumstances. And, and the fact that Joshua was seen to be prophecy uh, should tell us something about history. Uh, biblical history is something more than facts and dates and names and places. Instead, the Jews saw history as his story, as God's story, and the unfolding events that were happening around them were to be viewed and interpreted through the lens of God's plan and perspective and purposes. That's important to remember, uh, not just during the historical accounts that are hard to read, but also during the historical accounts that are very vivid and engaging, uh, like what we come across in Joshua chapter 2. Uh, where we find a fascinating and even entertaining story that has all the makings of a Tom Clancy or James Bond novel. You've got spies, you've got clandestine meetings in shady places with shady people, uh, you have villains who discover the heroes, you have deception and misdirection, uh, you have hot pursuits and narrow escapes, and, and you have a very unlikely ally who was among the bad guys who joins the heroes. It's all fascinating stuff. But in the midst of the intrigue and the suspense and the action, we must not forget that this little bit of history is his story. And there's a point in all of this, and there's a message in all of this for you this morning right now. So let's hear this message. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our great and glorious God. Joshua chapter 2. The word of the Lord says, and Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And, and when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, 
and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your word, so be it. And then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your holy and inspired word this morning, I pray uh, that you would help us to see your story in it all. And I pray that you, by your spirit, would illuminate the text so that we might better hear and perceive and believe in the word and the message that you have for us this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, before we jump into chapter 2, just a a quick reminder of what's going on. Uh, The people of Israel, about 40 years prior to this, had been slaves in Egypt But God, through a prophet named Moses, delivered the people from slavery through many miracles and signs and wonders, and Moses led them out of Egypt towards a land called Canaan. Uh, In fact, I've got a little handy-dandy map here, and uh, this will help us to get our bearings. Um, So, let me try that. I've never done the… oh, there we go. I've never done the laser pointer before. There we go. All right. So, there's… so, we're getting high-tech here. Watch out. Um… We're like a big boy church. Uh, so this is Egypt where there were slaves. Of course, this is the, the famous Red Sea that Moses parted uh, through God's power. They came to Mount Sinai, and that's where they received the, uh, the Ten Commandments. And, uh, and then they camped here at the wilderness of Paran. And, and then just to the north of that is Canaan. 
And Canaan was the land promised to them by God where they would dwell in safety and prosperity. They being God's people, God being their God. And this people in that land would bring blessing to the whole world, to people of every ethnic group and every tribe and every tongue. However, the challenge was that Canaan was occupied already not only by a people that were very powerful, but by a people that were very evil and wicked. And, and Israel was to drive them out. Indeed, the destruction of the Canaanites was intended by God to be His judgment on the Canaanites for their evil. Well, on their way to the promised land, uh, Israel proved to be wicked themselves. They continuously distrusted and disobeyed God. And the climax of that disobedience came when they were on the verge of going into Canaan. They were camped there just south of, uh, south of Canaan in the wilderness of Paran. And from there, from Paran, they sent 12 spies into Canaan to scout it out. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 13. Ten of the spies gave a bad report, which was basically all doom and gloom. Uh, the Canaanite people are too big, they're too strong, their cities are too fortified, it's going to be impossible for us to take the land. And so they failed to believe in God's faithfulness and God's power and God's promises. And therefore, in judgment, God deemed that that generation of Israelites would be shut out of the promised land. They would wander in the wilderness for 40 years, forbidden to enter the land, with the exception of two of the 12 spies that gave a positive report, and they trusted God. One of those spies was named Caleb, the other was Joshua, the, the hero of this book. And, and they and the next generation of Israelites would be the ones to go into the land. And so the book of Joshua begins with Joshua standing at the head of this new generation of Israelites. They're on the edges of Canaan, and the time has come for them to finally enter. So I've divided chapter 2 into five acts, and we're going to stick with the spy thriller theme here. And so I've entitled Act 1 as... Mission Impossible, the Jericho break-in. And yes, I had that music going through my head as I was preparing for this message. All right, uh, verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. All right, so here we are again. We're full circle. We're back with spies. And it's interesting, though, that, that Joshua sends two spies, and he does it, in secret. No doubt, Joshua remembers Numbers 13. He was probably emotionally traumatized by that event 40 years ago when 10 freaked out spies started publicly sharing how they were freaked out about what they faced in Canaan, and then that in turn got everybody else freaked out, and it all went downhill from there. There's no way that Joshua is risking that again. Uh, instead, this is going to be a secret mission, and he sends only two no need for too many cooks in the kitchen. Uh, last time, two faith-filled men gave a positive report, and he's trusting again that two men will provide helpful information and encouragement as well. And so, he sends these men on a secret spy mission to Jericho. And to get our bearings, let me put up another map here. This shows a, a probable route of the spies. And at the beginning of chapter 2, the Israelites are, are encamped at Shittim, right here on the east side of the Jordan River, and then there's Jericho. I want to thank the ESV Study Bible for providing today's maps, by the way. 
If you see further maps in this series, they are also brought to you by the ESV Study Bible. There's my plug, and I'll collect my commission from them later. But, um, so, they're camped at Shittim, and these men now have to cross over the Jordan and get into Jericho. You could say that Jericho is the gateway city to the rest of Canaan. And Jericho is a well-defended garrison full of well-trained trained troops and a massive impregnable wall. What's more, the city is on high alert. Now, the king of Jericho is aware that on the other side of the river are hundreds of thousands of Israelites who are already famous uh, for prior military victories and their supernatural exodus from Egypt. So you can imagine the, uh, the paranoia of the king and his people, and, and they probably have doubled and tripled their guard watch. By the way, uh, uh, Canaan was, was full of these little city-states that were ruled by these little kings. They, they, these, these kings weren't kings of large empires like Egypt or Babylon or, or whatever. Again, these are more like, like city-states. And, and these people are now on high alert. Men would have been atop the walls, scanning the horizon. Soldiers would have been sleeping with one eye open and one hand on a spear or a sword ready for action. And it is this city that Joshua and his army are supposed to take. And this is the city that the spies are to somehow slip into. They would have, for starters, as you can see on the map, they would have had to cross the Jordan River. This is flood season. The river is deep. So they, they had to swim across it or they had to build some sort of raft. We're, we're not told exactly how they got across. But that would have been the easy part. Because on the other side, they would have had a two-hour hike to Jericho, all the while keeping their eyes open for patrols that were probably uh, on the lookout for scouts just like them. Uh, they, they, then they had to slip into a city on high alert with guards who would have been very nervous about who's coming and who's going. Maybe the spies disguised themselves. Maybe they changed their clothes so they, they looked like Canaanites. Maybe they even uh, were able to change their accents. You know, they didn't have those electronic voice changers like in the Mission Impossible movies. Um, it was a lot tougher to be a spy back then, I think. No gadgets to rely on. But, but somehow they were able to, to slip in and get into the city and lose themselves in the crowd. And, and, and look at the end of verse 1. It says, they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. Now, some have attempted to soften the translation of verse 1 and say that she was an innkeeper. But that's really a watered-down translation. There's no doubt about her profession. On the other hand, I do think that it is likely that her house was also an inn, a, a, a tavern, a, a way station for travelers, for merchants, for visitors. And since it's described as Rahab's house, it seems like this inn was a part of her business. But we also know that there is a dark side to that business as well. Now, why would the spies end up going to a place like this. Why would two little Jewish, good Jewish boys end up in a place like this? Well, I think that if you're a spy, uh, this would be a very good place to go. Uh, here would come people from everywhere, uh, outside and inside the city. There, there probably would have been foreigners there as well, so, so they're able to, to blend in. You have people there of various stations of life. Uh, this would have been the perfect place for people with sharp ears to pick up on information and current news about the local situation, a place where uh, perhaps you could get into a conversation with somebody who's in the know. Uh, it seems like a great place to gather lots of intelligence. But it turns out that maybe the spies are not as good as we thought. 
The king's own security personnel not only spotted these two men, but they knew exactly where they went. You know, in spy movies, sometimes you'll hear someone say, I I have a tail, uh, which means somebody's following me. Uh, Well, apparently these spies had a tail who was better than them. Uh, They were being watched and followed, and, and they didn't even know it. And in a city that is paranoid and on high alert, word moves fast. And so, verse 2, it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, in other words, sent men to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. Now, sometime before the guards pounded on her door, Rahab must have discovered the true identity of these spies, which is yet another indication that these spies are not on the same caliber as James Bond or Mission Impossible's Ethan Hunt. Uh, Rahab was able to figure it out pretty quickly, and it seems like these guys are really blowing their mission. And as the guards now are at the door demanding that Rahab surrender these men, it seems like the jig is up and it's all over. Their cover's blown. These spies have nowhere to go. They, they, they could try charging out the door, but the guards are waiting there for them. If they jump out the window, the king's guards uh, on, on horses and chariots would run them down. And so their fate is in the hands of an unscrupulous Canaanite who had much to gain from turning them in, which leads to Act 2, unex, unexpected ally protection from a shady lady. By shady lady, I'm, of course, being charitable there. Uh, This was a woman who sold her body to anybody who came, uh, denying no one who walked through her door. She was a painted Canaanite prostitute from a wicked and rebellious and idolatrous people. Uh, She wasn't just an innkeeper, as some say. New Testament calls Rahab a prostitute, and the word is translated from the Greek word porne. Uh, We get our word pornography from it. And if this woman would sell her body for money, surely she would sell these spies Uh, Who knows how much reward and favor she might get from the king for being involved in their capture. And and yet, as we see here, the story takes an incredible twist as these inept spies are saved from certain death by a harlot who is a part of the enemy of God's people. And Rahab saves her Israelite guests by deceiving the guards. Look at verse 4. The woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me. But I did not know where they were from, and, and when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I, I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax, flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone in. That last part's not great because now they're shut in the city. But if the Israelite spies are somewhat inept, and by the way, let's not blame them. This was their first attempt at spying. Uh, This Jericho security force is equally inept, if not worse. They believe Rahab, and they go charging eastward on a wild goose chase towards the Jordan River. All the while, the spies are right there in Jericho, under their noses all along. Uh, The king's agents evidently have no suspicion that Rahab would actually want to help these Israelites. The whole city is gripped with fear because of Israel, and they all see themselves under a huge cloud of threats. Israel is seen by Jericho as harbingers of doom that they must resist and fight back against, and they assume Rahab feels the same way. 
But while the response of the guards to the coming storm is fear and hostility, uh, the response of Rahab is different. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why is Rahab different? Why, why does she respond differently than the rest of Jericho? And it is at this point when that all-important question is hanging in the air that unfortunately many Bible studies and sermons go off point and onto a very long rabbit trail about Rahab's lying to save her guests. And this launches into long conversations about the ethics of Rahab's lying and are there certain situations where lying is permissible and and what about if someone's life is on the line and does Joshua chapter 2 endorse lying in extreme life-threatening situations? And some of you want me to go on that rabbit trail. I'm not going there because that's not the point of this passage. The author's intent is not to give a treatise on if it's ever ever permissible to lie to the authorities. If you're interested in that topic, I'd encourage you to have that conversation among yourselves after church, during lunch, or, or even better, go to Jordan and Ruth's house for Sunday discussion Sunday tonight. That, that's Sunday spelled S-U-N-D-A-E. Yes, there'll be ice cream there. Their address is in the bulletin. This is a new thing that the Smiths have started Sunday evenings at 7 for a time of discussion of the sermon where you can camp out on fun little tangents like that. And I promise you, Jordan will have all of the answers for you on that that particular topic. That's not where we're going this morning, except to say that the author of Joshua neither condemns nor commends Rahab's lie, because that's not what he wants us to focus on. He wants us to focus not on Rahab's lie, but on Rahab's truth which leads to act three, shocking confession, the simple faith of a sinner. The author has structured this story in a way that makes it clear that the most important thing he wants you to take away from this is Rahab's confession of faith. The author puts it right in the middle of this story so you can't miss it. For those of you who are familiar with, uh, with chiasms, and, and, and Hebrew writing in, in, in the Bible and how sometimes stories are structured and the most important thing is put in the middle of the chiasm. That's how Joshua chapter 2 is structured. This is what he wants you to, to, to get. If, if, you, if you miss everything else, get this. Verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted for destruction. Isn't that interesting? Word has gotten around about this. Word has gotten around about what God has done, and specifically what Rahab has heard are, one, God's mighty acts of redemption for His people, saving Israel from their enemies through great signs and wonders, and two, the destruction of all who oppose God, like Sihon and Og, who were dangerous enemies of Israel. All in Jericho are aware of the events of the Exodus and the subsequent victories of Israel, and here's what's interesting. They all know that it's the Lord's doing. They clearly see the hand of God on Israel. They clearly see that the supernatural is with Israel. Uh, Rahab here talks about Og and Sihon being devoted to destruction. It's interesting language. That's, that's the language of holy war. That's the language of divine judgment. And it's Rahab that's using this language. 
Rahab perceives that, that what's happening is not some invading army greedy for territory. Uh, this is not just some land grab. Instead, Rahab knows that this is a targeted campaign. Uh, there seems to be at least some awareness that what is happening is divine judgment from the Lord. So Rahab knows about God's redemption of his people, and she knows about God's judgment on his enemies. And these truths, uh, she has heard, these truths have gripped Rahab's heart and is awakening faith. Faith comes by hearing, Scripture says, and she is hearing powerful truths about God. Verse 11, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That is an amazing confession. You see, the Canaanites were a people not unlike many others in the ancient world who believed in a multiplicity of gods. Uh, Gods who had some power, but uh, they were limited in their sovereignty. So, you find in these ancient mythologies beings like a god of the hills, and so his power is restricted to the hills, Uh, or a god of the plains, or a god of the sea, or a god of the the sky. Uh, Their domain and control was limited, but as Rahab has contemplated and pondered all she's heard about Israel's God, she recognizes him to be something altogether different. This isn't some local tribal deity whose power is constrained. This one is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's a way of saying he's God everywhere, and he is real, and he really has acted in history And he is superior to everything that Rahab has spent her whole life living for and believing in and worshiping. And there is something about this God that has captivated her imagination. She has not heard of anything like this before. She's captivated and afraid. She says, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man. But there's more. Rahab's response is to be contrasted with that of the king of Jericho and all the rest of Jericho for that matter. Everyone in Jericho associates the coming of Israel with the coming of God, and they are rightfully afraid. Now, if you knew, if you knew that a God who parted seas and who devastated Egypt, a world empire, through signs and wonders, who delivered Israel's enemies into their hands, if you knew that that God was going to be here in full force and power in just a few days, what would you do? How would you respond? How did Jericho respond? With humility and repentance? No, with resistance. They've reinforced their walls. They barred and locked their gates. They have weapons ready. They are hunting down Israeli spies. They are digging in their heels. They are, on the one hand, afraid of God, but on the other hand, still raising a clenched fist high in defiance. And this, my friends, is how men and their natural sinful condition always respond to God and the idea of His judgment with anger, defiance, resistance. They cling to their gods. They clutch their idols. They embrace their sin and in pride fight back. 
This is how sinful man always responds. This is, this is how men responded when Jesus came into the world. And so John writes that the light into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. This is why when you preach the gospel to your friends, your neighbors, whomever, you should not be surprised if the result is resistance and mockery and even anger. Folks, the human heart has not changed since Jericho. Men love their sin more than they love God, even when that sin is choking their lives and killing their spirits. But likewise, you should not be surprised when you share God's truth and someone's heart is softened and someone's life is changed as they stop fighting against God and they start surrendering to Him because God is in the business through His Word. uh, He's in the business of showering amazing grace on the most unlikely of people, turning the hearts of rebels towards Him. It's exactly what's happening here to Rahab. Verse 12, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and and mother, my, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. While the king of Jericho responds to the coming judgment with fear, anger, and hostile resistance, Rahab responds with a plea for mercy. And this is right and proper. This is a proper response in the face of the coming storm of God's judgment. She pleads deliverance from death. Rahab views the coming of God not just as a harbinger of justice and destruction, but this is very important. She also sees God as a potential savior and ally. Her request for deliverance is not just a request to to, to, to not be killed, She doesn't intend to wander around as a homeless vagabond after Jericho is overthrown. Rahab's plea is not just to be spared the sword, but that she might come under the protection of Israel and her God, that she might become a part of Israel, a part of God's people with God as her God. And so Rahab in this moment amazingly, amazingly is beginning to perceive something that nobody else in Jericho perceives. Indeed, she is perceiving, and this is no exaggeration, she is perceiving one of the most important truths in the universe. Namely, that yes, God's judgment is coming, and the storm of God's judgment is fierce and powerful and utterly devastating. But, just as importantly, Refuge from God is found in God. Refuge from God is found in God. The one who has the power to judge is also the one who has the power to save. Is that not the beautiful truth of Psalm 2, which points to Jesus as the great messianic king, God's special son, whom all the kings of the earth are in rebellion against, and who will come and bring terrifying wrath and judgment and destruction to all who have opposed him. And yet this same psalm urges these same rebels to do something that is counterintuitive. Uh, the psalmist writes, I'll need you to flip that over for me, 
Ah, oh, there we go. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's exactly what Rahab is seeking to do, seeking refuge in God, which leads to Act 4. Unlikely alliance. Enemies become friends. Verse 14, the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, and, the Lord, and then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. In the following verses, she helps the spies escape. I want you to understand here the significance of, of what's going on. It's not just that Rahab is confessing some doctrinal truths about God in all of this. And it's not just that she is confessing a desire to be spared from judgment. There's more going on here. Folks, it's not enough to not be an atheist, to merely say that you believe in God. True faith is demonstrated in action. And we have seen Rahab's actions all throughout this chapter in her assistance to the spies, which is a big deal. Because Rahab is risking it all here, friends. She is banking everything on her hopes in God. She risks being branded as a traitor by her people. She risks execution in aiding and abetting the enemy. She is banking her entire future on God because that's what true faith does. Now, this verse should seem very familiar to you after our recent sermon series. James chapter 2, verse 25, James says, Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Being justified by works doesn't mean here that your good deeds earn your way into heaven. That's impossible. Instead, it means that one's faith is proved to be genuine and real based on works for God that spring forth from faith. It's works of faith. This is very important because there are many who say that they are Christians, who say that they believe in God, they may even attend church, and yet it's all talk. There's, there's nothing in their lives to demonstrate their faith. We spent 19 weeks in the book of James this year talking about that, that faith works, uh, that faith produces a life bent towards God. And Rahab here, in helping the spies, is essentially exercising faith. She's cutting ties with the Canaanites. She's leaving the past behind. Uh, the king of Jericho is willing to fight for his city, but Rahab sees that as a fool's errand, and she transfers her allegiance from Canaan to Israel, from her old gods to the one true God. Her old life as an immoral, idolatrous prostitute to a new life as a daughter of God among the people of God. That's what it means to be a part of God's people, both then and now. And Jesus puts it this way, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus here doesn't mean hate people in the sense of not loving people. Indeed, instead, what he means is that uh, being a Christian means seeking to make your main allegiance to Christ, 
not to your family, not to your friends, not to your personal agenda, not to, uh, not to any of those old things about your old life. It means turning away from anything in your life that is contrary to what God wants for your life. It's turning away from those things and embracing Jesus and everything that He has for you. If you have real faith in God, that's what you'll seek to do. To be a Christian is to finally recognize that any other way of life is a fool's errand and will lead to destruction in the end. Now, these Israelite spies rightfully recognize that all who genuinely seek mercy in God should be spared. And they accept this Canaanite and treat her as one of their own. Enemies become friends. People on opposing sides become one people. And we see here in Joshua 1 the first fruits, the first fruits of what God promised Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, that long ago, through you, the whole world would be blessed. And, and these Israelite spies perceive in all of this a shadowy glimpse uh, of something that the gospel of Jesus Christ will make clear, crystal clear, centuries later when the apostle Paul writes, remember that you Gentiles, you non-Jews, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and members of the household of God. As early as the book of Joshua We see an example of how God's blessing would not be exclusive to just one people group. Now, yes, He would show favor to one particular group, Israel, but it was not for the purpose of Israel hoarding God's blessing, but for reaching the nations and mediating the blessing to the nations, bringing others into the people of God. And how beautiful it is, how beautiful it is that on the eve of the Canaanite invasion, the first thing we see is not the destruction of a Canaanite, but a Canaanite receiving mercy. Uh, That the the first convert into the people of God just happens to be a Canaanite. As this pagan prostitute is welcomed into the people of God. How cool is that? Act 5. Mission successful. An encouraging report. After making special arrangements to save their new Canaanite friend, the spies, per the advice of Rahab, hide in the hills for three days. There were plenty of caves in that area uh, that would have made perfect hiding places. And when they finally recross the Jordan and return to Joshua, they, unlike those faithless ten spies 40 years ago, they come back rejoicing in faith. Verse 23, they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. What a striking contrast to the negative report of those 10 spies 40 years ago who essentially said, we, we came, we saw, we can't. But these two men are different. And what's interesting is that they really hadn't traveled as extensively as the original spies. They just went to Jericho. But their adventure in the walled city was enough to encourage them 
God was clearly at work. God was obviously on the move. And there was no doubt that God would continue to go before them as he had promised. They didn't need extensive intelligence gathering or military reconnaissance. Instead, just perceiving God's hand in their experiences was all they needed. And the strength and courage that Joshua and God's people needed that was emphasized in chapter 1 is here given in good measure through the experience and report of the spies. This story, while history... Is his story. It preaches a word to Joshua's contemporaries and subsequent generations about God's faithfulness, God's supremacy, God's sovereignty, and God's mercy. As the conquest of Canaan began, not with a shot of an arrow and not with the capturing of a land, but with a heart that was captured and captivated and awestruck by the living God, a heart that confessed that the Lord is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. You know, the sparing of Rahab not only demonstrates Israel's mission to reach the nations, but it turns out to be essential to the success of that mission because if Rahab is not spared, the entire world will go to hell. But because Rahab is spared... She lives in Israel, marries a man named Salmon, and the Gospel of Matthew picks up her family's story from there. He, he writes that Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, Rahab, our Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. And of course, from David eventually comes the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And the inclusion of an ex-pagan Canaanite harlot in the genealogy of Jesus really sends a powerful message, doesn't it? Not just about Israel's mission then, but our mission now, and ultimately Jesus' mission. Jesus associates Himself not just with Jews, but with Gentiles, and He came to associate Himself not with the self-righteously pious, but with sinners, scandalous sinners all over the world, of every tribe and tongue and nation, because Jesus said that His mission was to seek and save the lost. Because it's not just Jericho that was under the threat of God's judgment. That's the state of the whole world. All of mankind has been like a defiant, proud, walled city, defenses up, rejecting God, going our own way. And as the spies entered Jericho, so Jesus, the Son of God, entered into this world, and He warned of the approaching storm of God's judgment. He said, do not fear those who can kill the body, but fear the one who can destroy body and soul in hell. But Jesus came not to deliver that judgment but to rescue from judgment. And he did it by taking the judgment of God upon himself on the cross, receiving God's death penalty for sins in the place of sinners so that anyone who, like Rahab, would turn away from their old life, cutting old allegiances and and old ties to a life of sin and rebellion and, and would instead bank all their hopes in God and His mercy and His promises that person would be saved from judgment in hell, receiving eternal life now, and a home in heaven with God later. And so now we, the people of God today, 
are charged to mediate the blessings of God through Christ to the nations through the preaching of the good news to every creature, no matter their race, no matter their background, no matter how moral or immoral they've been. Because the message of Joshua 2 and the story of Rahab and the message of the cross is that not even the worst of sinners is beyond the reach of God's amazing sovereign grace. So if you're here this morning as a believer, and you know of someone, uh, maybe a friend, maybe a family member, whoever, and they seem hopelessly lost, and you've prayed and you've preached to them and they continue to run from God, be encouraged. Be encouraged by Joshua chapter 2. If there was ever a lost soul, it was Rahab. If there was ever an unlikely candidate for salvation, it was Rahab. If there was ever someone who who would never want to hear about God or darken the door of a church, it was Rahab. Never write somebody off because it's that kind of person that God loves to rescue and bring to himself. I know because I'm that kind of person who was not one whit better than Rahab, as shady as her, if not more so. And God had mercy on me. Others of you here can relate as you sit here this morning as trophies of God's amazing grace. And if he can save Rahab, and if he can save me, and if he can save you, he can save anybody. Because his grace is that amazing. If you're here this morning as an unbeliever, you need to know that the approaching devastation to the city of Jericho is just a foretaste of a worse judgment to come. And, and deep inside, you know this. You, you know, like the Canaanites, that you've sinned against God. Uh, like Rahab, your past is dubious and shady and checkered. You've been an idolater, not worshiping gods of sticks and stones, but, but holding on to other things is more important than God. And you know you deserve God's punishment. And there are two responses, two ways to live, two ways to prepare for the coming storm of judgment. One is to raise your fist in continued stubborn defiance, like Jericho who trusted in their walls, in their fortifications, in their gods. Or you can join Rahab and you can say with her, the Lord God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath, and I want Him to be my God. And you can cast yourself at the feet of His mercy. Perhaps you feel you can't do that. Perhaps you feel dirty, guilty, like you've done too many bad things. Again, that's one of the reasons why the story of Rahab is here. Rahab, a a Canaanite with a dark past, a dubious moral character, part of a people that lived lives that were against everything the people of God stood for, uh, engaged in the grossest of immorality, even sacrificing their babies to their gods. This is Rahab's background. What's yours? If anyone was lost, it was hers. And yet she asked for mercy, and God graciously gave. Hebrews 11 says that Rahab did not perish with those who were disobedient. Why? Because she was obedient? No, but rather because, the text says, she had faith. She reached out to him in faith and was saved. God specializes in saving people like her, people like you. So, Don't leave this place this morning before pleading with God to save you. And if you want to talk or pray with someone more about this, I'd be delighted to do that with you after the service. Or if you have a Christian friend here, I know that they would be eager to do it too. Don't turn away from the amazing grace 
of God. Let's pray.